This is episode 222 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Protein Delivery Vehicles for Regenerative Medicine with Dr. Marion Hetirachi. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Marion Hetirachi from the University of Oregon. She's on the podcast to talk about her research designing biomaterials to control protein delivery to injured tissues. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup today with a paper that just popped off from Cell from my close friend, my man, Dieter Egli, fellow Druckenmiller fellow. He went on with the, for the Robertson investigator thing. He just blew it up at NYSIF, and now he's at Columbia University doing his own thing hard. He's really been known, I think, for cloning. He was early days uh, pioneering the efforts for SCNT with Kevin Egan and human embryos. And they made a lot, of, a, a lot of critical insights just into the mechanism and process there in mouse. Um, and he's moved on in that vein. Uh, and here he's really hitting close to heart, heart for me in, in talking about human reproduction, reproductive biology, we don't talk a lot about it in uh, the stem cell field, but you know, it is the first stem cell, you could argue. Um, and unlike the mouse, which we're also accustomed to experimentally, uh, the reproductive process in human is remarkably inefficient. You know, we're not kicking off litters here. And in fact, most of uh, the embryos that are conceived uh, end up uh, being lost in natural conception. Most of those are miscarried up to 70%. Um, and it's due to abnormalities in the karyotype that uh, cause this developmental failure uh, because the embryos acquire these chromosomal abnormalities during mitosis. Uh, but how they form uh, these kind of aneuploidies is not really well understood. Although uh, Dieter's group, they recently showed that double strand breaks induced by Cas9 in human embryos. And this was critical because this was back when and still now we're talking about um, manipulating uh, the germline and manipulating embryos for the purpose of addressing disease. And Cas9 here, he showed that it, it, it results in uh, whole as well as segmental chromosome aneuploidy. So a, a bit of risk there and going willy-nilly with the Cas9. Glad we kind of choked that off collectively. Um, but still, you know, the, the mechanism there of how that works is not well understood. But it's critically important because it's often a reason why embryos arrest aneuploidy, right? Uh, there's DNA damage that causes a cell cycle arrest. And there's a strong correlation between the cell cycle progression, right? So, you know, non-arrested cells and a healthy ploidy, good quality blastocysts and successful implantation. So this is a really critical diagnostic measure. And IVF clinics 
uh, around the world, the way they figure out which embryos to implant, the way they grade the quality of cleavage and blastocyst stage embryos is based on morphological criteria uh, that are really directly follow from cell cycle progression. These embryos have to be on time. So these criteria, uh, they guide really critical decisions on whether or not to transfer and which embryos to transfer. But again, how these uh, spontaneous chromosomal breaks that lead to the cell cycle arrest, how they form and how they're repaired in the embryo, it's not really been investigated experimentally, only descriptively. And this is also critical because the location of these spontaneous breaks could provide some insight into how they form um, and whether or not they're gonna have a tremendous impact on embryo progression uh, and of course, developmental capacity to that embryo. So what Dieter and a, a collective showed uh, distributed across New York at multiple centers, what they showed is that the, the S phase in the, in the single cell, in the one cell stage, you get replication fork stalling. So this is right out of the gate and low fork speed. And this causes DNA synthesis to extend into the G2 phase. Um, and you get these DNA damage foci uh, resultantly that form in the G2 phase. They show mechanistically what, what it's dependent on, a few gene products. Um, and this results in sponta spontaneous chromosome breakage and these aneuploidies. Um, and when you enter into mitosis with this incomplete replication, that's how you get the chromosome breakage. So this lag in the G2 phase and then subsequent Commencing mitosis, that's how you get the chromosome breakage, breakage and the errors, um, chromosome fragmentation, and ultimately poor embryo quality. And here's another key, the sites uh, of the spontaneous chromosome breakage um, are same, the similar, or the concordant, uh, as the authors use the word, a nice word there, with the uh, sites of DNA synthesis in the G2 phase where you get that stalling. And this is predominantly in gene-poor regions with long neural genes. So that's a little kernel there that may be worth investigation. Um, and ultimately, collectively, this story, I think, is a really important uh, contribution, just starting to tease apart the mechanism of, of how these, this poor embryo quality results from DNA replication stress. It's something that happens to varying degrees in mammalian pre-implantation embryos. But I think here, key, another critical uh, uh, add here is it in these gene poor regions. Uh, it seems like that's where the fragility is concentrated. Um, and ultimately in human embryos, this leads to a, a more loss, uh, more embryos are lost than implant, presumably because of these chromosomal uh, breakages and, and um, abnormalities. And ultimately I think this can have a real critical uh, clinical implications. Yeah, I can understand why you love this kind of work. I mean, this is really in your wheelhouse. And as somebody who's not directly involved in reproductive biology, I can still appreciate just the beauty and the sanctity of, of just the early embryo. And like you said, 70% of early embryos are lost, which is in, in humans, which is absolutely tremendous. And it's it's uh, a number that I didn't realize was, was that high. And I think uh, it'd be also interesting to compare that number to other mammalian species, other primates, to see how, how these differences in early embryo development are conserved potentially. So certainly a lot of implications here for perhaps improving reproductive biology, improving IVF by being able to isolate uh, healthy embryos and very early stage embryos that are more viable. Um, this is a, I think there's a lot of applications here. One thing that they did mention was that there are a couple of studies that actually came out at the same time as this one, perhaps not as high profile, 
um, that were you know worth highlighting. They were doing some similar work. One was actually a cell reports paper by Camilla Mokanu, who's also looking at DNA replication, which and was mentioning that it's highly resilient and persistent under the challenge of mild replication stress, and in particular looking at um, some of these early embryo models to, to study that. And also a little bit more about the DNA replication fork speed and how it actually underlies cell fate changes. This is actually a separate nature genetics paper that they actually alluded to in this paper. And I thought it was, uh, it was, it was relevant to the, the work that's being presented here. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's a basic science study with a lot of implications for IVF. And perhaps, you know, ultimately the goal is to, to get more embryos for IVF, more viable embryos that are able to implant and generate babies, right? Yes, I, in terms of practical clinical endpoints, I think you're right there. And, and, you know, there's a lot of diagnostics right around the corner in terms of all these uh, biopsies that we're doing of embryos that are probably going to allow uh, some insight and some kind of clinical, clinical uh, import, you know, some kind of um, some choices can be made. But I, for me, uh, it's even bigger than that. I'm just overwhelmed by just how ubiquitous and, and, slipshod, I guess, the, the, this dysfunction here is in, in these early replication in human embryos. And it's amazing to me that you get uh, these cells that do ultimately emerge from the mosaic embryo and, and result in a perfect, you know, relatively perfect organism. So I think the implications of this are profound. Um, and also, it really, I think, brings to the fore the, the notion of of manipulating pre-implantation embryos for the purpose of, of ameliorating disease, I think with Cas9 in particular, as a follow-up to the Cas9 story, I think this has really strong implications. As you know, it's a big mess already to get in there and start introducing more double-strand breaks, particularly uh, in parts of the genome that are not uh, gene poor, so to speak. Uh, maybe, maybe something that we want to proceed very warily with. Agree with you 100%. And certainly there's a lot of uh, eyes at ISCR and around the world that are focusing exactly on that topic of early embryo editing in, in humans. And unfortunately, it has been done um, by, you know, uh, the group in China. And who knows what else is perhaps coming down the pipeline. But yes, this paper and others like it are alluding to the fact that, you know, we have to be very careful with these uh, approaches of early embryo editing, because especially with CRISPR, we know CRISPR is not perfect. There are off targets that we have to deal with. Um, and then it's, it's, it's definitely not a perfect technology, especially in the context of this work. So we'll move on to another story, a high profile story. This is in nature. It's very different. Um, not talking about early embryo development. They were talking about the intestine, something obviously very different. Um, this is also a very basic study, but I liked it because it was in my mind, explaining a phenomenon that we, I thought we have all, you know, we've talked about a lot on the show, LGR5 positive intestinal stem cells, these intestinal niches, the CRIPS, some of Hans Cleaver's work, right? That's been so instrumental in figuring out how these intestinal stem cell niches work. But this is actually a paper that's uh, revealing something new. I thought we'd already figured everything out about how these intestinal niches and these LGR5 positive stem cells work. This is the title of this paper is retrograde movements determine effective stem cell numbers in the intestine. It's talking about the actual motion of certain cells in that niche, in the stem cell populations and how the motion of those cells can actually impact their ultimate fate, their properties. 
So let's dive into it. You know, with the morphology and the functionality of the epithelial lining, it's, it's different between the different uh, portions of the intestinal tract, the large intestine, small, small intestine, very different in this regard. But tissue renewal at all sites is really driven by these stem cells at the base of the crypts. We've talked about this ad nauseum on the show, covered so many papers on this topic. But whether the stem cell numbers and the behavior that, you know, how, how these behaviors and the stem cell numbers at these different locations, uh, you know, vary, this is not precisely known. So here's showing a, through a ton of really beautiful microscopy, um, intravital microscopy, that despite differences um, in the, uh, sorry, despite similarities actually in the numbers uh, and the distribution of proliferative cells in that LGR5 positive population, in mice in particular, the small intestinal crypts, specifically small intestinal crypts, actually contain twice as many effective stem cells as the large intestinal crypts. And they're finding here that there's a quote-unquote conveyor belt-like upward movement where the small intestinal cells positioned away from that crypt base can function as long-term stem cells thanks to wind signaling. Wind signaling comes up again and again in the context of intestinal crypt biology, right? But in contrast, the absence of this you know, conveyor belt retrograde movement in the large intestine restricts stem cell repositioning, which leads to a reduction in the effective stem cell number. So this, this taught me something new about intestinal stem cell biology and why there's a difference in stem cell number between the large and small intestine. And perhaps there's this, this motion, this retrograde motion is impacting the activation and the, the positioning of these cells. And moreover, they, they looked into a little bit, a little bit more deeply. They suppress this retrograde motion, uh, motion in the small intestine. And when they did that, as you might expect, the number of effective stem cells in the small intestine was reduced, and the rate of monoclonal conversion of the crypts is actually accelerated. Okay, and so ultimately, it's telling us that the number of effective stem cells is determined by the motion of the cells themselves and where they actually move to how they're actually able to be activated in response to this motion, which is apparently more prevalent in the small intestine than it is in the large intestine. And ultimately, this maybe is one of the reasons why there's perhaps a larger intestinal uh, stem cell population in the small as opposed to large intestine. I think it's, it's a new paradigm in my mind, perhaps something that could be pharmacologically manipulated as they allude to, um, but pretty cool to think about. It makes me wonder about other situations in the body why, where this sort of motion uh, may actually be ultimately impacting the function and behavior of different stem cells in, in, in certain niches. Yeah, we get so used to, or I've gotten, I guess, so used to, because I'm getting, getting old, of uh, visualizing these biological phenomena in a static, you know, in a still shot. And I, I you know, when I first got into stem cell biology, I, I really grabbed onto the idea that we could recapitulate these uh, embryonic developmental processes, cellular processes, behavioral processes of cells in vitro, and therefore get a, a kind of insight into the embryo, into that black box. And so I, I've always been in love with the live imaging. And this, this paper really exploits that, I think, um, in, a, in a great way. And I mean, I'm not complaining or anything, but I thought 20 years ago when I first got into the game, that we'd, got, we'd get, have gotten a lot farther 
um, a lot further, I should say, in terms of actualizing these live imaging technologies to glean some kind of biological insight, which is not to say that we haven't made tremendous strides with all the imaging capability, you know, the physics capacity, the two photon light sheet and all that stuff. It's amazing. But here now I feel like uh, it's percolating and we're starting to see a lot uh, of the returns of visualizing um, these processes in space. And this is a great example of that. And as you said, it really shifts the paradigm. And so this is a, I always love an imaging paper and this, this not in any crazy way, by the way, you know, you don't look at it and it's not, you know, overwhelming in terms of the imaging mastery. It's just really smart the way they use the technology. And, and I think they, they really unearth an important um, phenomenon here. Yeah, like you said, it's it's. I don't think it's particularly complex in terms of the overall approach in the paper. It's just how they use the technology and the the power of the technology that was available to them. Really, pretty straightforward reporter lines here. Reporter mice, um, you know, tagged different uh, fluorescent reporters in the intestinal niches, tracked them in 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 live in in these mice. I think live imaging is really the key to, to unlocking so many mysteries in, in biology and in pathology in particular. Um, think about it. A lot of what we do is from like post-mortem or immunofluorescence of fixed tissues, that sort of thing, right? But if you can examine the behavior of a stem cell niche or cell population in real time, in the body as it's actually functioning without causing any sort of harm to the, the animal, the organism, I, I think that's what we have to do because ultimately we want to understand biology as it naturally happens in, in real time. And then to me, and this is looking perhaps more long-term next steps to me, it, it's about extending some of these live imaging modalities to, to human biology. That's, that's the next step. And I understand that we're not going to have fluorescent reporter humans anytime soon, alluding back to the CRISPR discussion that we had before. But I, I think extending some form of this technology, live imaging of, of cells in the human body, um, you know, in a, in a non-toxic way, of course, uh, in a way that's not going to impact, negatively impact the patient, that sort of thing. I think that's going to tell us so much about human pathology. Um, so I'm excited to, to see how maybe some aspect of these approaches can be extended to humans as well. Yeah, you and me both are ruining, you know, one of the great challenges, here's my segue, uh, is in the field of hematopoiesis, you know, time and space, that's what we're talking about, time and space, and then trying to figure out how we can, uh, fig, you know, identify the conditions for growth and self-renewal of hematopoietic stem cells or the birth of definitive hematopoietic stem cells and development, we gotta be able to visualize these things in space and through time. Um, and that's gonna be a challenge. Although hopefully these imaging modalities will approach that. There's one element here that we have, it's an experiment, a group of experiments I have, a cell stem cell paper that was looking at hematopoietic cells in time at the very least, um, not looking at them actually in space, but I think a really important longitudinal study uh, of hematopoietic stem cell aging, and not just aging, um, but uh, I guess aging in response to inflammation. So injury, infection, autoimmune conditions, uh, they're all uh, situations where mature blood cells are a really important source of inflammatory cytokines, right? Um, they create these cytokines, but they're also a critical effector, right? They're the target of a lot of this inflammatory response. And also immature hematopoietic stem cells and progenitor cells 
Uh, it's also been shown by many studies at this point that they respond to inflammatory cues and this inflammatory stimulus in these cells can provoke a, a mobilization of hematopoietic stem cells so that they exit their quiescent state um, and you know, make a lot of cells to respond to that inflammatory or infection or whatever it is. Um, now, the idea is at least that these dormant hematopoietic stem cells that they're a reserve, right? A repository that can be mobilized, a lifelong repository that can be mobilized and transiently stimulate all these effector cells and then can return to their dormant state. Um, but, you know, unfortunately for all of us, that's not really exactly the case. There's been a, a lot of data now that has shown that there's a lot of infl inflammation associated stress hematopoiesis that leads to a long-term functional impairment of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells that affects their repopulation potential and results in this myeloid bias that's been very, very uh, regularly observed at this point. Um, and here's the thing, uh, humans and mammals generally, uh, as they age, they develop this state of chronic low-grade inflammation, right? And that coincides with this suppression of hematopoietic stem cell potency and this myeloid bias that you see in aged patients and animals. Um, so it's obvious there, you can probably infer the causal relationship, that link, but it, it really hasn't been demonstrated clearly and the mechanism hasn't been shown exactly. Um, but it's thought that there may be a, 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 a inflammatory, a role for inflammation in driving this age associated hematological malignancies that commonly emerge. Um, now, most of these studies, as most studies in hematology are done, are using mice so that you can control and do all this transplant biology. But most of the studies have been done to date because old mice are really expensive, have been using young mice. And the longitudinal studies that look at an acute inflammatory challenge in early life and then follow up in those mice in old age, those studies haven't been done, um, or at least I'm not aware of them. So that is where Michael Milsom and, and his group from the High Stem, that's in Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Institute for Stem Cell Technology and Experimental Medicine. Uh, Dr. Milsom and their group, they undertook these longitudinal studies um, where they caused this inflammatory insult in young mice and then looked later on at regular time points. Um, and what they showed that there was this irreversible, and this was a surprise, there was an irreversible depletion of functional hematopoietic uh, stem cells that lasted for up to a year. So immediately post-inflammation for a year, that's like forever for a mouse, um, fully geriatric after a year. Uh, and the hematopoietic stem cells uh, had um, cellular feature, molecular and cellular features that were indicative of accelerated aging. Um, they had blood and bone marrow phenotypes that weren't even usually observed in aged mice but you do see in old humans, and this was a real surprise to me that no one's seen this before, that you're getting recapitulation of these human type aged phenotypes um, in mice that undergo inflammatory uh, insult. Um, and here's the key, they show that the, the self-renewal of the hematopoietic stem cells was absent or very rare, um, both during the inflammatory challenge and after. Uh, and this suggests that there's this progressive irreversible uh, attrition or loss of hematopoietic stem progenitor function due to like a discrete, even a one-time inflammatory event. Um, and multiple inflammatory events can result in a cumulative, a cumulative effect. So for me, this is kind of like mind-blowing because not just in, in the blood, which is everything, 
um, not just to me, but to all of us, you know, having depletion of your hematopoietic capacity, if it's accelerated, um, that's not good. If it's premature, that's not good. Um, but also, as the authors note, in, in every stem cell niche, you have to wonder uh, if inflammation, because it's being appreciated more generally now that inflammation has a negative effect in, in tissue progenitor beds, uh, that you may be having a, a similar phenomenon where you're getting either premature mobilization or a loss in that uh, progenitor function. So I think it's a pretty scary uh, implication there. And it makes me really want to introduce my, my stress and clean up my diet. Room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, as the, the parents of, of kids, you know, that we are on the show, it's, it's a scary in, in another way, right? My kid, who's almost two years old, He's getting sick all the time. So who knows what kind of inflammation he's dealing with constantly through being exposed to the variety of germs present in daycare, right? Is that going to impact his downstream hematopoietic stem cell function? I don't know. I don't really want to think about it really. Um, but perhaps there, there is some, some implication there. I think uh, we've got bigger problems to think about when it comes to daily daycare as opposed to thinking about HSC function in my own kid. But yes, something to, to consider. I will say though, you know, and they directly mentioned this in their limitation section, although they did present this sort of scary hypothesis, right? They, they didn't dive into a deep molecular mechanism here. So they actually said we prov provide no precise molecular mechanism to explain the loss of function of HSC capacity that they're observing. And then, I mean, to me, this was a little weak here <laughs> to hypothesize, they hypothesize that any such mechanism is likely complex and multifactorial, as is the case for several age associated phenomenon. Yeah, sure. Okay. I sure we'll go with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, at that point, they just washed their hands of anything. Once they had the editor, they had the hook in uh, with that scary implication, I think it was enough. And in fairness, you know, and, and this was part of my surprise, the idea that this link had not been made and the idea to look at acute and discrete inflammation in a young mouse and look and follow up in an old mouse. I mean, I'm sure it's been done. I'm sure it's cited in the discussion, but the, the fact that this has not been observed, I think really uh, brings it to the fore. And I think it's going to be for a lot of other researchers, uh, to, to meet your challenge there, Arun, and, and dig a little bit deeper as to that multifactorial mechanism, because for certain, I would agree with the authors in that one um, contention that it, it can't really be due to a single kind of silver bullet. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, not taking away from the paper at all, it's complex, it's complex interplay between genetics, environment, and especially in the context of inflammation and the immune system, which, as we figured out during the pandemic, we know so, so little about how the immune system works, right? Mm. And, you know, whether it's mice, humans, there's, there's a lot that we need to figure out. So moving on to something else that, again, is another colon study, I'm kind of focused on the the colon here today. Uh, it's coming from the lab of Toshiro Sato over in Japan, Department of Organoid Medicine in uh, Keio University. Uh, they've done some really great work over there. I think we've actually covered some of their papers recently. Uh, we're talking about uh, cancer here. We're going to cancer relapse in particular in uh, colon cancer stem cells. So taking the basic study that I was talking about on the second round of paper and extending it to, to a more pathological um, uh, 
approach, right? So again, talking about colon stem cells, intestinal stem cells, but how they adapt a, a cancerous phenotype and phenotype, and in particular readapt a cancer phenotype after chemo, because cancer relapse after chemotherapy is a is a huge cause of cancer-related death. This is a very sad reality. People go through chemo, which is so awful in itself. I'm a cardio-oncology um, you know, aficionado. I know that after having chemo, you can have damage to the heart, uh, even if you're able to knock out the cancer, so to speak. But then the worst case scenario is that cancer still comes back, right? And although the relapse is thought to result from the propagation of these resident cancer stem cells or CSCs, there's not a ton of experimental platforms that actually can facilitate this analysis of CSC, you know, cancer stem cell dynamics with enough resolution. Again, we're talking about spatio-temporal real-time resolution um, to really kind of figure out what's going on. So what they did here, and also going back to the imaging um, approaches that we love talking about here on the show, they developed a live genetic lineage tracing system, really beautiful imaging here, uh, that allows longitudinal tracking of individual cells in xenotransplanted human colorectal cancer organoids. And they identified LGR5 positive, again, LGR5 coming up everywhere, uh, colon cancer uh, stem cells that are showing a dormant behavior in a chemo-naive state. These LGR5 positive stem cells uh, are marked by P27 expression, again, doing some intravital imaging, showing that the persistence of these P27 positive cells during chemo is, is followed by the clonal expansion. So it's basically, there's a subset of these LGR5 positive cells that are P27 positive that are the ones that are driving the relapse. I think this has profound implications for you know colon cancer biology. They did some transcriptome analysis showing that upregulation of certain collagen molecules, Col17A1, cell adhesion molecule that strengthens the hemidesmosome, uh, and these dominant, uh, well, dormant in this situation, uh, LGR5 positive, P27 positive cells. And then they did the standard genetic analyses, right? They knocked out this collagen subset called 17A1 in their organoids, their transplanted organoids. And then they lost this LGR5 positive P27 pop, uh, uh, population that normally would be responsible for that relapse, okay? So there's this connection here between LGI5 positive, P27 positive colon cancer stem cells and the expression of this particular collagen, 17A1. Um, when you get rid of this collagen, perhaps you can stop that relapse from happening, okay? And they did some chemo, additional chemotherapy approaches to disrupt collagen 17A1, break the dormancy in the uh, LGRFI positive P27 cells through FAC-YAP signaling, YAP signaling, if for those of you who don't know, is a very powerful signaling molecule, uh, not only implicated in various cancer phenotypes, cell proliferation phenotypes, very important developmentally as well. So uh, we're converging on a number of very powerful signaling pathways here that are implicated in colon cancer progression and, and, and you know, cell proliferation in general. So when they abrogated their YAP signaling here, they restrained the chemo-resistant cells from ex exiting dormancy and delaying the tumor regrowth, um, highlighting the potential of maybe YAP inhibition. I I'm, a, I'm a little skeptical on targeting YAP because it, it's just such a potent signaling molecule across the body. I think you really need to 
be selective in where you target it. Uh, if you really want to prevent some of this exiting from dormancy and exiting and re-entering relapse. So I'm not entirely sold on, on YAP targeting, but regardless, I think this is a, a really important study because we're talking about a way to maybe prevent tumor relapse in the context of colon cancer. And maybe you can extend this to other cancer types as well. This is a huge problem and very sad reality in cancer. People go through horrible rounds of chemo, devastating to all portions of their body, and in some situations, it's not enough. The cancer still comes back, maybe dependent on some of these mechanisms in the, in the colon itself. Um, so any new approaches, therapeutic options that we can have to uh, alleviate some of these relapse possibilities, I think it's, it's very important and, and worth, worth studying in depth. Yeah, well, I got to say, as, as straightforward and like, you know, I don't want to call it simple, but elegant simple your your first colon story was first of two colon stories uh this second colon story was a tour de force of methods vectors organoids knocking stuff out the imaging as you said the whole the whole approach for the imaging i thought was like elegantly complex as opposed to elegantly simple um but really a beautiful result there and as you said, of course, the, the idea of targeting app, I think maybe, I don't know, we got to talk to uh, our guests maybe about targeted protein delivery. Maybe we can, you know, you know, target the YAP inhibition, but also just as a premise, I, I love all the, the mechanism here. And in particular, the call 17 a one, I love the idea that they lose the dormancy um, and then are, are targetable, right? So you can target these, these dormant, um, cells that hide out. But the idea of YAP inhibition uh, as a converse, I don't get it because, I mean, I get it, but like uh, it's, what, what do they say? It, it, it restrains chemo resistant cells from exiting dormancy and delays tumor regrowth. Is that really a therapy that you want? I mean, I get it. Some of these cancers are super aggressive, but like delaying tumor regrowth, I would rather mobilize the tumor into a minefield of chemo, you know, with the call 17 a one. So fundamentally, I feel like there's a, there's a ton of mechanism here and insight, but in terms of the path to therapy, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent on that. Yeah. It's like, do, do you want to prevent the regrowth or do you want to just kill the tumor in the first place? Right. Do the upstream problem and handle that before even worrying about the, the, the regrowth, you know, it's like, almost like what, what's your priority here? But I agree with you. This is a, a huge paper, tremendous tour de force, chock full of amazing imaging, ton of data here, uh, amazing models too, organoids. So, you know, I think really cool, if nothing else, just a really cool basic study, really basic study for colon cancer biology with maybe, maybe some implications for the downstream. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I'm no oncologist. I, I, I'm sure you got some patient that's deep in it. That YAP inhibition is looking pretty good. Um, but let's maybe talk about that targeted protein delivery with our guest, Marion, in just a second. Before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, 
Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative driven people to join their international team, explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, everybody, for this episode, we have joining us Dr. Marian Hetiarachi, who is assistant professor at the Phil and Penny Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact at the University of Oregon. Dr. Hetiarachi's lab combines expertise in chemical and biomedical engineering to design biomaterials to control protein delivery to injured tissues. This work involves developing protein delivery vehicles for regenerative medicine by integrating cutting edge techniques in protein engineering, polymer chemistry, and computational modeling to design versatile, clinically relevant biomaterials. Marion, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure is all ours. And we've known for a long time now that translation of regenerative therapies is going to require novel bioengineering applications. Now, of course, this is a stem cell show, right? But uh, we appreciate that the biomaterials that serve as a substrate for cells are a critical modulator of their function. Um, why don't you start off by sharing your lab's approach to leveraging biomaterials in regenerative medicine? So as you mentioned, um, my lab is interested in designing new biomaterials for protein delivery and sequestration in the body, and we're ultimately interested in enhancing tissue repair. Um, so what we specifically work on is this idea of affinity-based biomaterials, where we will engineer our materials to bind specifically yet reversibly to a number of different proteins of interest. Um, and so this focus from my lab came out of some of my PhD work, where we worked on making microparticles out of the extracellular matrix molecule heparin, which can bind to a ton of different growth factors that are important in tissue repair. Um, and so we kind of use heparin as a model for what we want our biomaterials to do. Um, but as you can imagine, something like heparin has a lot of other effects. Um, it's most commonly known as being an anticoagulant. So if you're making biomaterials out of something like heparin, there's the chance for off-target effects. So what my lab tries to do now is take this concept of something like heparin or extracellular matrix molecule that will present a growth factor in a specific way to cells. But now we try to engineer those um, protein material interactions instead. And so we will um, use protein engineering to basically engineer peptides that bind very specifically to our proteins of interest with the idea that we can reduce off-target effects by having it being a very specific interaction. Mm -hmm. And we hope to have the proteins basically sit on the materials that the way that they would sit on the extracellular matrix and allow us to have them interact with cells um, in a way that you would similarly nor normally see them in tissue repair. So it's definitely a really hot area of study. I mean, this idea of targeted uh, engineering and targeted delivery of different materials and different proteins in different parts of the body and different cells in the body. And so let's actually take a little deeper dive into that heparin-based work that you, you talked about. You've done some really cool work recently published in Science Advances and Targeted Bone Repair, demonstrating that the natural bone morphogen, BMP2, can be merged into this heparin-like biomaterial that you're talking about for safer delivery. It's aiming to fix a pretty scary problem while where BMP alone in pretty high doses 
um, you know, as has been the practice in human treatments can lead to soft tissue inflammation and abnormal bone growth too. So tell us a little bit more about that work. And I think that's actually some of your graduate work as well, like you mentioned, and how you might be able to leverage this idea of heparin-based, you know, delivery for, for bone repair in particular. Yeah, so just as you mentioned, we were specifically interested in bone repair because this is a really big clinical problem. Um, and so the current delivery vehicles for BMP include things like the collagen sponge, which don't really have an affinity for BMP. And that's why when you deliver it, you see the BMP rapidly released. And, and that's what causes a lot of the side effects that you'll see in, in humans. And so um, we were seeing the same sorts of side effects in our rat model where we would um, deliver BMP in a collagen sponge or any sort of biomaterial that didn't have a specific affinity for BMP, and you'd get this huge callus of bone formation um, outside the intended site. And so it was really quite striking how much bone you were getting outside of the femur that we were trying to repair. Um, and what's more is that we found that when we did mechanical testing on the bone, it actually wasn't very strong either. Um, and so what we did with the heparin microparticles is basically suck all the BMP um, into the defect site and, and retain it there. And there was a lot of um, work that went into this area um, before we actually got to the Science Advances publication. And so we have a couple other papers where we actually published a lot of negative data, seeing that um, if you basically hold in the BMP too well with the heparin microparticles, you see a negative effect. And we think it's because the BMP is not able to stimulate cells to, to move into the defect site. Um, and so we did a lot of um, basically in vitro, in vivo experiments and some computational experiments to try to understand this better before we got to the science advances paper. Um, but by the time we got to that paper, we had a much better understanding of what was going on. And so that was how we were able to use our computational model to understand better how many heparin microparticles we would need for a specific dose of BMP. And what we did in that paper that I think gets it um, closer to clinic than some of the other studies we had done in the past is that we tried to dose match the BMP dose to what would be seen in humans. So basically taking that, that huge dose of BMP that you would normally use in humans, which is on the milligram scale, and then scaling it down to the rat. Um, so it would be on the 30 to 50 microgram scale. Um, and so by doing that, we were trying to solve more of the clinical problem um, rather than the problem of, of healing bone in, in rats, which is actually kind of easy to do compared to doing this in humans. Whereas the human problem is more that you get this huge callus of, of bone formation. So kind of compounding that all together, the idea of the heparin microparticles, the computational model, um, we were able to identify the number of microparticles that would give us um, that robust bone healing, where we saw that the bone that was um, we saw that the bone that was formed inside the defect site um, was just as strong as the huge callus of bone, which is kind of surprising. So we were able to create bone that was um, mechanically stronger um, by using the heparin microparticles versus um, the clinical biomaterials as well. Yeah, Marion, I'm really glad that you uh, gave us a little bit of the run-up to that. I mean, the Science Advances paper, very high profile, and of course, you know, all the recognition that it deserved, but I, I'm glad that you emphasized how, all the work that led up to that and the individual stories, because that, that's really the key, I think, that we're seeing nowadays. And it's the young investigators like yourself that are leading the way from concept, you know, the conceptual advances that were maybe made in the recent decades, but, you know, trying to apply them with the precision 
and, and you know, in, in a robust uh, uh, modus that that will get it into people. So uh, thanks for emphasizing that. And it, it's interesting to me in terms of the bone. I, I love the bone and bone repair as this uh, unmet clinical need because in terms of function, right, bones are kind of inert. I know they're not. I mean, I love bone marrow and hematopoiesis. So I'm not some fool who's going to say that bones is just a passive uh, framework there. But, you know, at least they can be replaced in parts. You know, one whole bone can be replaced with something that's just inert, you know, titanium. Uh, it's been in play with joint replacement, hip, knee, shoulder, even elbow. So, I mean, we're really moving forward in these orthopedic approaches. Uh, and, and in this era where replacements, I'm not trolling you here saying, hey, who needs bone repair? I know it's really important, but I'm just wondering, when, as the joint replacement becomes more commonplace, do you envision that the re regenerative approaches uh, requiring the precision that you just talked about um, on these micro scales, do you think they're going to complement this kind of uh, bone replacement or, or joint replacement that you're going to apply these kind of ancillary uh, molecular approaches with the orthopedic? Or do you think that we're just going to displace, like, you know, joint repair is going to be considered barbaric in the future and we're just going to grow it, you know, like some Star Trek thing? What, what's your take there? I think ultimately it would be really cool if we could completely replace um, joint replacement. But I think um, what you said is exactly right, that it's going to be something complementary until we get to that point. I think, um, especially as more people are needing joint replacements, maybe needing them younger now, we know that there is um, a certain amount of time where those replacements are good. And then eventually you see destabilization um, of the implant, or you see basically mechanical failure of the bone surrounding the implant. And so if you could cut those implants with something like an affinity-based biomaterial like heparin um, or some of the new engineered materials that we're making, um, then you could hopefully get it to integrate into the body better. Because I think integration of these implants into the body, especially in bone, is something that is still a problem. And so I think some of the approaches that we're developing can definitely help um, things that are actually being in, used in the clinic right now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about one of the greatest areas for regenerative medicine and the areas with greatest potential in regenerative medicine in terms of impacting the most people around the world, potentially, whether it's, you know, selectively targeting proteins like BMP, what we're talking about to regenerate bone or developing entirely tissue engineered or scaffolded bone constructs. There's just so many applications for the work that you're doing and just a huge unmet medical need in this area. Uh, I remember we actually talked to Dr. Joy Wu at Stanford about this a bit, who works in, in your field as well. And she just reminded us about the huge number of people who have degenerative bone diseases like osteoporosis, for example, we're all getting older and we all, unfortunately, our, our bones degrade to some extent, right? I mean, it, that's in addition to, of course, all the daily bone injuries, fractures, accidents that happen. And since I'm a fan of all things space, I have to, of course, mention that this is a huge interest that NASA has in this particular field as well, since bone degeneration is a huge problem for astronauts. But when it, we're just talking about of volume. And when we're talking about an approach that can benefit the most number of people worldwide, what would your favorite approach be in terms of regenerative medicine approaches for bone, whether it's targeted delivery of morphogens? Of course, you have certain biases, certainly from the work that you're doing. But if you had to pick one approach that's just going to benefit the most number of people worldwide, whether it's elderly people, astronauts, everybody, what would that approach be? 
Um, so I am a little bit biased, especially um, considering my work in, in growth factors and morphogens. But I think if we can um, create something that is really similar to what is used in the clinic, that's what I think really would have the most impact because it would be things that would be more likely to be adopted by surgeons, things that would be um, more easily brought to um, different people around the world. And so I think um, things with protein delivery um, are the, I think that's the, the way to go, I would say. For um, things like BMP, you can um, basically have a product that is lyophilized and so it's somewhat shelf stable for a long period of time. And so I think if you could uh, make a better BMP delivery device, like some of the work that we're, we're trying to do, lyophilize it so it's shelf stable, I think that's something that could be widely distributed and have a great impact for a lot of people. Yeah, a lot. Of, I mean, look, it says bone in the name. So I get it. We're sweating the bone right here. But like bone morphogenic protein is big at a lot of points, uh, not just in development, but just in homeostasis of many different organs and tissues. So I, I love anybody. I mean, not a romantic love, Marion, but a platonic and respectful love for all your work because it really does underscore the application of these uh, morphogens that are that are so ubiquitous and uh, important. And, you know, I think as I just led with that, a lot of us stem cell biologists, we fall so, so deeply in love, uh, perhaps a romantic love in this case, with the, the glorious precision and complexity of embryogenesis, right? And we lose sight of that same glorious precision complexity that takes place in tissue repair in like adult tissues, right? Um, and, and many of those same principles uh, can be gleaned from adult systems and applied to a stem cell uh, platform, particular, you know, homeostasis repair, the, the, the circuits that you use there, you can also, also um, apply them in uh, embryogenesis. Um, and of course, there's differences between embryonic and adult processes. But do, do you apply any of these tools or principles? Have you thought about um, applying them outside of of bone repair and adult tissues? Is there anybody, collaborators that you have that are trying to apply these principles in, in differentiation? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'm particularly interested in bone given my, my PhD in bone regeneration, um, but I did my postdoc work um, actually in the central nervous system, repair of the central nervous system, so stroke and, and spinal cord injury. And so I'd say that really, um, opened up my eyes to other things that we can do with um, affinity-based biomaterials. And so what we're doing now, which is kind of looking a little bit more in depth on how these proteins interact with cells and can induce differentiation, can be cell instructive. We're trying to look at it as like tissue healing or tissue or cellular processes as a whole. So not just necessarily um, bone tissue engineering. So this is a really interesting place where we can look at what's happening in development. We can look at the different proteins that appear at different parts, different stages of development, and now try to mimic this um, using our biomaterials for things such as tissue repair. And so what we're doing here, instead of trying to deliver a large amount of a single protein, which is what is being done clinically with BMP, we're actually more interested now in delivering small amounts of multiple proteins to mimic either developmental processes or what's happening in tissue repair. And why we think we can do this better using these kind of materials instead of something like heparin is that if we can now make materials that have specific 
um, peptides or binding partners for individual proteins of interest. Our goal is now to control the release of each of these proteins one at a time. So you could imagine a system where you have proteins that are involved in chemotaxis, and those appear first. Proteins that are involved in inflammation, and those also appear relatively early on. But then later on, you get proteins that are involved in angiogenesis or modulating the immune response, or other sorts of proteins that are involved in cellular differentiation or extracellular matrix molecule deposition. And we have this idea that we can now um, release each of those proteins on a timeline that would mimic something like development or tissue repair. Hmm. I think that's part of the beauty of the work that you're doing. And part of the beauty of being an engineer and a bioengineer is you have so many applications for these technologies that you're developing, developing, and I'm sure an unlimited opportunity for collaborations as well, which is of course the lifeblood of what we do as academic scientists. So you're a bioengineer by training, as we've discussed, and you did your graduate work with a friend of the show, Dr. Todd McDevitt who, uh, you know, before he moved on to Santa Biotechnology, was a PI at UCSF, and then before that at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Um, there are a lot of folks in academia, senior and junior, who have kind of recently made this jump to industry. And we've actually chatted quite a few of, with quite a few of them on the show, Dr. McDevitt for one of them, Chuck Murray, Hans Cleavers, the list really goes on and on, especially recently. I mean, some have called it the great academic exodus. And I know plenty of folks who have actually skipped doing postdocs entirely to chase more directly translational and perhaps more lucrative opportunities. And, you know, bringing it back to the bioengineering side of things, I think bioengineers by the nature of the engineering work that they do might be in the, the best position to make that transition to industry in a lot of ways. And you've chosen a different path. Of course, you're an academic PI and you've been in academia for a little while now as an independent PI, but as a bioengineer working in a very translational field in bone repair, hydrogels, protein delivery, that sort of thing, was it ever something you seriously considered making this jump to industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so I think what really has drawn me to academia and has kind of kept me in academia is the, the part that I love the most is being able to train and mentor students to help them get to their end goals, which may be clinical translation or being an academic PI or any other sort of career. So for me personally, I see my role in translation as being mentoring other people to help us all sort of get to that, that goal of clinical translation. And I would say it, it was a big part in me deciding to come here to the Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact, um, because part of our motivation is to be training um, our trainees, not necessarily just for academic careers, but also careers that would have a, a big role in clinical translation and in industry. And so by being here, there's a lot of support for innovation and entrepreneurship, as well as helping um, students come together to create startups from our work. And so I see my role um, in clinical translation more of doing this through academia and starting more industry partnerships, potentially starting startups, um, and really mentoring my students to, to help us all get a go along that path. And so I think it kind of depends on um, what your specific priorities are. And so for me, I was more interested in the, in the mentoring part and then trying to sort of build that into the clinical translation. And so that's just the way that I've been approaching it. Yeah, there's so many ways to go about it and uh, just new new paths keep emerging. Um, but you've stayed on the academic path 
thanks for that because you know that is i think the engine of uh, all the great minds um that come up and then ultimately translate the work but the the surfeit of opportunity i think is a testament to how the science has matured and is ready for translation but as you're on the academic path, uh, NIH funding is critical, not just for the research, but also to like advance your career, right? For promotion. Um, and you're on a very strong trajectory having already received this highly competitive Trailblazer R21 grant from the NIH, which I, I think is a, a special type of R21, just because, you know, it's experimental or preliminary work, but I think it speaks to how um, impactful the work is and innovative um, and what the great potential for a return is there. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. But I'm sure that doesn't relieve the pressure, right? I'm sure the pressure's still on you and, and you like Arun, of course, of starting your lab in, in a pretty murky time in the history of biomedical science and research funding uh, with you know, COVID uh, specifically, but a lot of issues. Um, of course, you don't really have a anything to compare it to right this is you're starting a lab for the first time and only time but um for the first time so uh you don't really have a point of reference but maybe you could give us your impression like you just said it's very specific your your interest in academia is about the mentorship that's been your path what do you think for you uh is the most critical uh first step or the critical foundation for making your lab into a success in this new era yeah, that's definitely a difficult question. I would say starting a lab um, during these times has really made me realize the importance of all of the different elements of support that you um, need to get in an institution in order to be successful. Um, I would say one of the most challenging things and the most important things to be successful is to be able to recruit and retain good people. Um, and so I think a lot of the success that we've had so far um, with the Trailblazer, for example, and also with some of the preliminary data that we're just starting to get, um, showing that our technology that's in development is working, um, has all been due to the work of graduate students and undergrads who are really passionate about this work. And so I, I think it's hard um, during these times, especially being in a new program, to be able to recruit um, great students because it's hard to get your name out there. And again, being in a new lab, um, it is difficult to, to advertise and kind of explain the type of work that you're doing to people, hoping that they're going to be interested in your area. And so I've put a lot of effort into um, recruiting and trying to get both good graduate, graduate students and undergraduate students. But I would say that has, has really made the difference over the last two years, um, is being able to be surrounded by um, great people who are really creative and, and very hardworking. Yeah, it's stuff that nobody really teaches you how to do in grad school and postdoc, right? The management, the the marketing, the business side of it, the recruitment, all that you learn about the science and how to do the science. And all of a sudden you become a PI and you're expected to, to know how to do these things. So there's definitely a, a learning curve to it, as I, I agree with you entirely there. And I mean, we love highlighting new PIs and folks from everywhere around the world here on the podcast. And I believe you're actually our first PI from a school in the beautiful state of Oregon in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. here. What folks might not realize that the University of Oregon has actually recently finished this absolutely stunning research facility that you're talking about, the Knight Campus, the Phil and Penny Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact. That's the full name. 
And it's named after none other than Phil Knight, the co-founder of Nike, who is a longtime donor to the University of Oregon, all different athletic facilities, research facilities, all, all different things. And I was looking at some of the pictures of the campus, and it's really just jaw-dropping with its glass architecture, shiny new labs, amazing facilities. So picking up where to set up shop as a new PI is always a tough decision. Well, so what was it about the University of Oregon and the Knight campus in particular, you know, that made you want to choose the Pacific Northwest as your new home? So I definitely say it, it's once you visit Oregon, it's really hard to leave. It's an absolutely beautiful place. It's a wonderful place to live. Um, but when I came and visited for the first time during um, my interview and my recruitment visit, the building wasn't here yet. It was basically just a hole in the ground and they had some nice artist renderings of it. Um, but really needed to imagine what it was going to look like, imagine what the people were going to be like too as well, because I was one of the first assistant professors recruited into this new environment. Um, but I think the vision and the potential um, for the Knight campus is really what drew me. The idea of emphasizing um, innovation and entrepreneurship, clinical translation, um, and then also the possibility of being part of starting something new. So it's exciting when you're part of a new building, a new program, and you get to have um, quite a bit of input into the core facilities, the ways that the labs are designed. Um, and so that's really been a great experience. And since they've built this first building now, they're in the process of building um, the second building, which should open in, in 2025. And so that's been really wonderful thinking about what we want um, in addition to what we have in this building, how we can do it better in the next building, thinking about academic programs for students as well as core facilities again, and, and how we want labs to interact. Um, and so it's been, um, I'd say definitely in some ways, a little bit more work to be able to um, have so much input into things, but um, being able to shape a new department um, has been a really wonderful experience. Yeah, that's the, I'm so jealous because of course, I mean, everybody loves the shine and all the toys, I'm sure. But the, the being at, at, in on the ground floor is really, I think, the, the thing to be envied. You know, being one of the first APs there recruited means you get to kind of establish the culture, right? You get to build the group. Um, it's, it's your name that's anchoring, no pressure or anything, Marion, but it's your name that's anchoring the, the future of that institute. And uh, we have very high expectations. I think the, the greatest thing about your field is that the, the, it, there's so much so much that it could be applied toward and uh the, the need is so great and you know with a name like nike there behind you i'm sure you get some dope sneakers i would hope but at the very least you have a very rich funding to get after those problems um so yeah we're, we're really excited to have had you share uh you know how you're starting your scientific journey and we're going a little bit on the peripheral side here to ask some science adjacent questions to end the interview first um if you were not a scientist, I mean, I don't want to imagine a world where you're not a scientist, but if you weren't, what would you be? Um, so I think it would actually be something very different. So I'd say like growing up, um, I wasn't specifically really interested in science as in my number one career. I was actually more interested in writing. Um, and so I, when I was younger, I was actually more interested in either being a creative writer or a journalist. Um, for, for most of my life until I discovered this love of science. And so I try to bring that into my work a little bit. Um, when we write papers, when we put together presentations, trying to think about how do you tell a good story? Um, but maybe that's something that I can take up as a, as a hobby later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I talked to a writer and I had this debate. This is a bit of a, of a 
of a drift away from the subject here. So forgive me, but I thought it was a really good symmetry because I was calling him out. I was like, you know, the thing you writers, you could just make stuff up. Um, and he made a great point, which is that you can't just make stuff up. It has to be plausible. And, and writers kind of make stuff up the same way scientists do. You make up something that's plausible and, and it, it has to have some ring of truth to it. Um, and, you know, in, in the best case, it's authentic. And I, I thought that was great. So it's not surprising to hear that you might be a writer. I'm sure you'd be as good at that. And yes, please don't shy away from, you know, your future as a novelist. I'll read some of those. Uh, finally, what is the biggest misconception about science that you would like to re resolve? So there's actually two things um, that I think about a lot. And then I, I tell undergraduate students and um, high school students who are interested in science. Um, the first is that um, I think people think of science as being uh, measurements and calculations and math, but there's a lot of creativity involved in it. And I, so I think developing um, your creativity um, through art and music and things like that actually help you a lot with science. And so for people who think that science is just reading a lab protocol and then performing it, I would say that's definitely not the case when you get further on in science and you can start doing your own experiments and developing your own research area. I would say that creativity is a really big part of that. Um, and then the second thing, um, as I mentioned, I wasn't really interested in science when I was younger. It wasn't until I'd say undergrad when I was able to do um, research in a research lab that I really got interested in science. So I think there's this misconception that scientists who are leaders of labs have this wonderful story about how they loved building things and taking things apart and being really inquisitive when they were younger. And I would say that was definitely not me. That was not something that I was all that interested in. But as I grew older, I realized that I had, I developed this love of science. So this idea um, of people being heads of labs, being really into science their whole life and that being everything that they care about, I would say that's definitely a misconception. Um, I would say that a love of science is something that you can definitely develop. You don't have to be born with it. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I love that idea because I'm waiting for someone to like in their twilight, like second career, be like, I'm going to go be a scientist, you know, after being like a financier on Wall Street. I feel like science should be accessible at any point in your life. And I mean, I, I think I knew I was going to be a scientist since I was a young age, from a young age. But um, like you, I, I don't think I really caught fire in terms of the interest until I was mature. So I, I could second that. Um, I don't know about Arun's story, but there's, you know, science from a young age, science at middle age, science in old age. I'm an advocate for all that. Marion, thank you for sharing your uh, journey and your thoughts. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to seeing what comes out of your lab. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. That's a wrap for episode 222. Until the next one, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.